I need to write a blues poem. There's plenty of inspiration. Don't we all have the blues right now? Even a New Orleans funk band might not be able to blow through this fog. Pockets empty, books all read, tired of cooking and the same four walls, tired of myself. Sons of pink flamingo streaking toward the west, trailing smoke and embers, creating vivid cherry sunsets. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome. This is Sharon Smith, and this is I Am Big Poetry Podcast. And I am here with a scientist. She is the director of the John Muir Research Center over at um, UC Davis. And she has herself a poetry chapbook that she has out called Shifting Light Into It Through the Darkness. I like to give you none other than Sarah. Is it is it okay or okay? Oktai, 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 Sarah Oktai, Oktai. Mm-hmm. We should have got that first. Dang, I'm gonna cock that off. <laughs> well, and you might. I actually, my job is different, and the title of the book is different. Ah, oh, so shifting the, from the because it says the things through from uh, the shifting dark. light from the dark. Fifteen, 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 light from the dark. 15. Yes. And I'm the <laughs> director of Steppens Cold Canyon. I'm not, there's no John Muir Institute. There's a John Muir Institute, but I'm not the director of it. Oh, okay. Okay. So, first of all, hi, how are you? What's going on? I'm great. <laughs> how are you doing, Sharon? Thank you for having me today. Yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry to be a complicated. No, uh, <laughs> no, not at all. So, hey, correct it while you can. <laughs> yes, yes. So, I've, looked, I've been looking around and... First of all, first, thank you for being on my um, podcast and stuff. And it's, I know you have a show on Monday uh, with, um, what's his name? Scott, was Scott from England. Yeah. Yep. So this is going to be, this is your, this is your first presentation feature. Um, I, I'm trying, it's the first one for SPC. Yes. Yeah. I know you've done one with um, Write It on the Air. Correct. And, and other, mostly with your husband, Lynn, Lynn Germanara. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. This one, you're actually on your own. So yes. I'm actually like kind of impressed what's going to come out of that. <laughs> but Thank you. Uh, I've looked around and I've, I've, I've been curious. Where are you from? I am from Oklahoma. Oh, okay. So I saw that you're, you went to college in Galveston. I was like, she's not from Galveston. No, I lived in <laughs> Texas. I went to college and uh, there's not a lot of ocean in uh, Oklahoma. And I'm an oceanographer. So I went yes. uh, south to Galveston and got my PhD there. Okay. Okay. And you all, did you also get your um went to A and M? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Texas A and M. So you can just want to go, go. Go Aggies. Yep. Go Aggies. So did you also um get your BS degree on um, your B um BS in marine science from there too, or was it? Yep. Yep. Else? I went there. Yeah, down there to. Uh, I had an associate's in chemistry in Tulsa, and I went down there to get my bachelor's of science in marine science. The mm-hmm. school in Galveston is all marine science based, so it's oh. a 
great school, but it completely concentrates on on their marine world. Okay. And I and it was funny finding out that you also were um, you went to um, the Twin Towers in New York to study on the chemical substance that um, that went into the Hudson River and stuff. But um, the chemical signature um, during nine eleven. So yep. one question because I because my um, my partners she she used to live when they had to happen in New York when that happened and stuff and she mm-hmm. says that some of the she has to get herself registered because a lot of her ailments she might might have occurred from the chemical um, substances that were in the the black clouds in the air and stuff and I was like oh I didn't know about that. So, Absolutely. Yeah, we were one of the first people to predict that. So we measured the ash just three weeks after yeah. the the um, the attack, yeah. and then uh, we measured the sediment in the harbor. And there was a lot of fiberglass. We were actually looking for asbestos because yeah. um, there's asbestos in buildings. But when you think about a building, it's mainly made out of drywall, right? Yeah, right. And that drywall is all uh, both the drywall itself and then is gypsum. And so um, we found just pulverized clouds, you know, massive mountains of gypsum in, that got into the atmosphere and went fairly far north. Um, fortunately, there was this major rainstorm on September 14th that washed a lot of that out of the atmosphere. But we were able to actually use a scanning electron microscope to image them. So we could see these were long, thin strands that were big and heavy, but could still kind of float and, and and get down into your lungs and would get stuck in your esophagus. And so we we predicted that World Trade Center cough would be a problem and that this carcinogenic uh, material would that was inhaled by people would cause long-term health. Uh, but um, the government didn't really want to hear that <laughs> at the time. And so um, it took us about four or five months to get published because each publishing company kind of didn't want to publish us. Uh, and some of it's because we were trying to get out quickly because it was really critical news. And so um, sometimes people think, oh, well, it's not vetted enough. Um, but uh, our, our results mirrored the U.S. Geological Survey's results, and both of us found uh, fiberglass basically spread out all over the city and also some copper and zinc. Um, the good thing is we didn't find very much asbestos, and we were looking for a lot of other carcinogenic chemicals that we did not find. So there are plenty of other dangerous things, but I, I knew at that time that uh, World Trade Center cough would be when we were out there on the Hudson River, we were on a little rowboat and you could still see ash falling on us. Wow. So, I mean, it was the cloud persisted for almost a month, even with that rainstorm. Wow. But you haven't, I mean, that hasn't been the only time you've been with, uh, you know, button heads against government officials and also nature. Uh, you've also been that way with um, erosion, on coastal erosion and stuff with, um, like you basically were doing when the um, going with the geotubing when they were looking into geotubing uh, over in Nantucket and stuff, and you basically had it. You, t- you basically were against it, showing the fact that if by doing the geotubing itself will, um, even though it will slow down erosion, it will basically starve the the beaches and stuff from having sand and stuff. Yes, I looked up. Yeah, and for you. <laughs> Yeah, that's in Vanity Fair. I actually made it in. Not very many scientists get into Vanity Fair. But um, yeah, I was on the Nantucket Conservation uh, Commission for nine years. And uh, that that case is still ongoing. Uh, But uh, some very wealthy, um, not that it matters that they're wealthy, but people who had money to throw 10 or $20 million at a problem. 
wanted to armor this um, public beach, uh, which they managed to do. And um, our, our conservation commission voted against it, and we were overridden at the governor's level, which is almost never happens. Uh, the science is actually quite clear that when you put in these geotubes, they act like a wall and that the beach disappears and that you starve the beach, exactly as you said. So, uh, and you're allowed protection if your house is old, if it's pre-78, but in 1978, the Wetland Protection Act was enacted, and so all of those protections went away. So there's a lot of argument for um, if you have an old home and you uh, double it in size, then it no longer has the footprint. So there's there's a lot of, um, you know, and in my opinion, we're completely right on original decision. Um, and, you know, it, true to the fact, they have to constantly pour sand over the over the side to mimic what would normally be pulled away from those high cliffs in big storms. And there's even more storms. So this is more important because there's more hurricanes, there's more nor'easters because of climate change. And so um, they are literally stealing their neighbor's sand um, and causing quite a, uh, the beach is going away. So we all as people had in many states, almost all of the United States can walk on the beach. Um, in most areas. And uh, when people take our beaches, they're taking a public good. This is happening in California too. There's several beaches yeah. in California that have been blocked or. I know um, Highway 1 has been a big factor that they've been fixing over and over. And now they said they actually stopped. That's stopped trying to rebuild or construct Highway 4 anymore. So it's been an issue. But you've also been you've also been a host of a documentary called Rising Tide. And I pointed out um, information about that. Um, you did the it was in 19, it was in 2016 the, the movie or the documentary came out. Then you went back again and also talked more on it on two, in 2018. So you so let me get this straight. So science is your thing. Ocean, I'm a scientist. Ocean, I'm a scientist through and through. I'm not, yeah, I'm not really a poet. I am a, I'm a poet, poser, a scientist who's trying to learn to use poetry to describe a little bit of our world. Okay. And even with the whole, uh, so with Mark, um, from Mark Garofalo, the gentleman who actually plays Hulk, um, the Incredible Hulk on the movie um, The Avengers, mm -hmm. uh, you basically were helping him as a science advisor. What was the, what was the deal with that? Yeah, well, I uh, am known for doing water quality work. Uh, so most of, as a chemical oceanographer, I'm always looking at the oceans and harbors in Galveston and Boston and then off Nantucket and looking at the water quality and the ways that humans might be messing that up. And so, I, <laughs> which we, we do a lot of. So for chemical oceanographers, you either study climate change or water quality, uh, typically. So he, uh, one of the residents on Nantucket knew that I knew a lot about water and he had founded a nonprofit called Water Defense and was looking for scientific um, advice on, on how to, uh, you know, his idea at the time, and it's a really great idea, is to try to make it possible for more people in America to get their water tested and to get those results posted on a giant website that, that takes away all the mystery. So you're not just submitting a water sample somewhere and it goes into the ether and you never understand what's in it. Yeah, so um, we were working together and uh, doing a couple of experiments there on Nantucket. I had him come to my field station, uh, and after meeting and, and learning a little bit about each other, um, he asked me to be his senior science advisor for a couple of years. Nice. Yeah. Nice. 
he's very intelligent. He spends a lot of time. He's, he's actually moved into doing more climate change um, support. So he uh, runs the Solutions Project, or he founded that. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Solutions Project uh, works on climate change and actually provides a lot of funding to um, underserved communities and to organizations run by people of color. So that's wow. he's kind of morphed into that more. Okay. So let's do a little spinoff. So from scientist to poet, how did you get into poetry? I have to blame Lenny for that, uh, Len Germanaro. I, I'm sure I wouldn't have occurred at it. So, uh, yeah, we've been together, um, I think, our, our 16th anniversary is coming up next week, and we've been nice. together about 18 years, yeah. yeah. And so I met him um, when I lived south of Boston. Um, I was going up to UMass Boston every day on the train, and he was a crossing guard, and so I just said hi to him and took him some cookies one day, and uh, he he had a flyer for poetry in his back pocket, and he handed it to me, and he says, well, you know, I would you like to come see this poetry event? And I'm like, oh, dang, this guy's asking to be on a date. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. You know, I didn't know anything about slam, anything about poetry, and it was a slam event uh, that uh, he was inviting me. It was, you know, regular reading and then slam afterwards. So that was my first exposure to poetry. Uh, I had watched, like, you know, um, HBO Deaf Poetry Jam, right. and I had friends that were, you know, I performed in theater. I'm not completely a nerd, um, but <laughs> I had, you know, really never thought of poetry as anything other than really boring, you know, Robert Frost, like staring at a piece of paper in a monotone. Uh, and I just really loved it when I started going to the poetry, and he was running a venue in south of Boston in the Bridgewater area. So we started going all the time, and then, you know, we started dating and moved in together. And then I, my job at um, my this position opportunity to become a director at a field station came up almost immediately after we started dating. Okay. So that's always difficult. You're like, oh, do I, does this person want to move with me to an island 26 miles off, <laughs> Mass, you know, off the coast? And yeah. It's a very different world out there. And fortunately, he, he was uh, willing to do that. And so we started hosting poets, and it was really fun to... Uh, we worked with, um, you know, high school groups that were doing slams, um, got to meet a lot of LGBT poets in the Boston area, poets of all different ages and backgrounds. The more poetry I heard, the more I liked it. Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't, so it wasn't something you first was already acceptable when you walked into with, when you met him, you basically had to now get yourself accustomed with it. So, well, that's a good question now, now that you, now that you've seen the slam, the slam or spoken word side of poetry, mm-hmm. how does how does that fit? How does how does your views feel on the written side and the spoken side? How do you feel? About that? I do appreciate more. So before, like most Americans, I didn't read a lot of poetry books. It's just I read a lot and, and I write a lot. I write a whole bunch of nonfiction uh, essays. I've written nice. essays for the newspaper for uh, eight years for Yesterday's Island. In fact, I've got five books in the works right now. Uh, so I write a lot, but I I never um, thought to read poetry. Now I'm I'm a lot more open to it. The more you hear of it and hear different voices and different backgrounds, it kind of for one thing it takes away the old white guy part when you <laughs> when you start reading, you know, women's poetry and young people's poetry and you know uh, just backgrounds of people are more accessible to me and and okay. less boring. So, um, and when I got to see a lot of different people perform and got to meet people who are writing poetry it, it made more sense i think it's it's kind of the way i am with um you know sports if i know someone on the team then i'm going to appreciate the game more yeah, so yeah. if i know the poet then i'm going to appreciate what they're saying more so the more you know the 
uh, it's become more enjoyable to me over time, and I'm, I really like it. And after a while, I, uh, I actually have a poem about, um, about finally writing poetry. After you listen to it for 15 years, you're like, <laughs> I guess I better write something. I mean, how hard really? can it be? Yeah. <laughs> Let me give it a try. I thought I, I actually did think that you were just kind of more into the spectating side of it because it seemed like you went from Nantucket and into Colorado. And I see that um, Lynn was mostly doing a lot of the, you know, getting himself in, involved with a lot of the poetry committee and stuff. And he would, you know, bring you along and you're like, oh, okay, I'll be there. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll co-host I'll co- with you or I'll yeah. co-fund it. But you were more just, I hate to more say like, you're just with Lynn as he was doing this thing, but, you know, just watching as it goes. And stuff. But when, when did you, when did you first write your first poem? And it was in Colorado or in uh, No, it would have been in Nantucket, yeah. Okay. So uh, I started writing. We used to have a workshop down in our yeah. garage, and uh, a lot of um, our friends would come in and sit and drink whiskey and write poems. And I was <laughs> usually too busy to sit down and, uh, and, and, and with them and write something. But uh, one time I decided they talked me into it. I sat down and wrote a couple of poems. And eventually, within a couple of months, I had about eight or nine poems, and I didn't hate them completely. I thought they were okay. And <laughs> I got them to workshop some of them, which really helps if you're writing poetry i think it's really helpful to workshop them and have you know len and i bounce each other's work off each other all the time but it helps to have someone you trust that that is a a good at what they do reader so i was writing some on nantucket we also had a kids program where kids were writing poetry and we were teaching uh, inner city kids in a big long um, we had a kind of like a short summer camp type thing for inner city kids and poetry was a part of that so we were poetry was really part of our lives as much as oxygen or the water um in its you know, it permeated everything we did. Right. So it was just a matter of time. It's it's just, uh, you finally just give in and go, okay, I'll write more. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I never thought about combining it into a book until I got here to California. And I'm like, really? oh, I, pro- I probably have enough that, you know, I do a lot of writing. I've got several books I'm working on. I'm like, mm, let me go ahead and get a chat book out. And, you uh, know. Because uh, I know you basically were doing a lot of um, lens editing. You're his, yes. you're, you're his mm-hmm. editor and stuff. So did you feel like you needed to put in a like a rite of passage to yourself, say, you know, I'm a poet too. Let me put my book out. Uh, seeing this is your first book, Sifting Light from the Darkness. Yeah. I did finally, you know, most of the time I didn't want to get up and read. I mean, I would occasionally, even on Nantucket and maybe going all the way back to Bridgewater. But most of the time I wanted the attention on the poets. You know, we were co-hosts and we were pretty good co-hosts together. But yeah, after a while, I'm like, you know, I I can do this. And then uh, maybe somebody would like to read it. Who knows? So um, it was easy. And when you edit a lot of books, it's not as daunting of a task to uh, put together a book. I, I try to encourage anyone I meet um, that's interested in publishing themselves. It's just so easy to put a book out on Kindle and on Amazon. It's, it doesn't take but a week, you know, to sit down and, and um, map it all out and get it in there. I know, I know Lynn's um, really, really strong on the whole do-it-yourself um, projects and getting, getting your own publishing or doing your own books and making your own um, mm-hmm. poems and chat books out and getting your own not really worried about, you know, going into the industry and trying to get them to do it. So I, yeah. I would assume that he kind of encouraged you to, or kind of, you've seen him do it so many times. You're like, oh yeah, but we, we can make my own. 
Right, right, right. Well, and I would make them for the kids too. So I've edited and published and produced probably 10 books of poetry. So uh, I don't mind sitting. In fact, I do a lot of writing for other groups. So I kind of like what would be boring or scary for people, which is sitting down and mocking it up in Word and transferring it to the template. All the things that um, scare people. I, I don't find any of that. So, and he's had it where he has worked with kids groups and actually does perfect bound books where they're, they're physically making, they're printing it off, printing the cover, binding it together with book glue and, and actually making the book. And kids love that because you can walk away at the end of the day with your poems, you know, looking like this. You know? Yes. So. <laughs> so, so being that this book came out in 2020, this, this, you got this done in 2020, right? Right, right. In November. Yep. Yeah. So, what about twenty twenty? What about twenty? Well, beyond the whole COVID, brought you to get this book out in twenty twenty, not two thousand nineteen, or yeah, it could. That's a good question. Um, I probably was more introspective actually in twenty twenty, and uh, several poems in the book are about COVID, and I got kind of a enough poems together that it formed. It's still a very I call it a wee chat book. It's only you know like twenty five pages or twenty eight pages. It's pretty thin, um, and but it was enough to actually you know put together into a chat book, and it made me start writing more. So it's funny as soon as I published this i wrote like six or seven more poems uh they just started coming to me uh which i hear that happens with a lot of people where they get up every day and they just like wow i really feel a poem coming on i better sit and write it down so i the more i heard poetry the more inspired i got uh to to actually write stuff down and i'm uh, writing a memoir right now uh, on finding my family and there's some of these poems will go into that memoir okay okay finding family so uh because you're also Native American. I'm Turkish. I'm, I'm Turkish. Turkish. I thought a long for yeah. I thought for a long time that I was a Native American. Most people from Oklahoma think they are uh, because <laughs> we're told that yeah. by our elders. They're like, right. oh yes, you're a sixteenth or you're an eighth. I I am the same kind as uh, Elizabeth Warren, a Native American. Where, and it's only until you do the twenty three and Me or go through and you yes. go, I don't actually see the connection here. <laughs> that's that, that's not. Um, but I am half Turkish. My my oh, father yeah. father father was uh, uh, came here in 1950 from Turkey. He's, so um, I went in 2014. About the same time I met Mark Ruffalo, I went to Turkey and through oh, okay. a series of incredible events, managed to find a family I didn't know even existed. And so I'm, I'm writing a book about how I found half of my family whom I didn't know their names, where they lived. I didn't know they existed. Um, so um, I went from having like six relatives to having 56 relatives <laughs> over overnight. I mean, they all still, you know, they existed. They just were unknown to me, obviously. So so I got really lucky. So how does that feel being op- opening up a new chapter it's strange it's cool but it's yeah so when you go halfway across the world and you meet a bunch of people and they look just like you and they sound like you uh my my brother is the spitting image i mean literally a doppelganger for one of my uh cousins when they sit next to each other they look like twins um yeah and it's it's a part of my life that always was just in the background you know just for many people who are Native American or have any kind of hidden Scottish or Irish or Jamaican or, you know, it's just something you it's just a tiny part of you. And then to actually go meet a whole culture and find all these people and go, wow, this is 
should be a big part of me. And I, you know, I don't speak Turkish yet. I'm trying to learn it. Um, it was pretty shocking, actually, um, to to find this. And thankfully, I have a really great family there, and they were very gracious about. They could have been going, well, what's wrong with you that you're just now finding us? Um, so it's interesting, too, that how uh, with all of our ability to fly and with the Internet and everything, that you could still have a major part of your life that's completely unknown. Let's talk about the book. Okay, so, great. <laughs> so, this, so this book did come out in November and stuff. Uh, you have, like you said, you have 25 pages. Mm-hmm. What are some of the poems talk, um, in, what they mostly in um talk about because i was able to get a copy i would have to ask you <laughs> yes no that's fine and that yes if i was on top of that kindle dang oh, dang God. me or i should have sent you a copy in fact i need to get some more uh, to to bring out to uh these virtual events um so it's mainly about science poetry i write a lot of science poetry um curtains of inquisitive inquisitive squid dart like frantic ghosts left and right in the spotlights 100 meters down in the impossibly clear water, you can still see the rosette. The CTD transmits secrets of salinity pressure and temperature as it sinks down a mile or so over the next four hours, trapping giant gulps of water at chosen depths, finally raised up on the work deck, streaming sunlight and tendrils of water later that afternoon. Yeah, so I write about geology. I've got an oceanography poem in there. Um, I'm my second book that I'm working on now. I'm actually writing even more about science. A lot of fellow scientists have bought my book, and they're like, "Wow, I never." They're biologists, and they're like, "Oh, I never knew what an oceanographer did." And so I'm kind of going to start leaning into that and, and writing even more about science and about nature. Uh, I do write a lot about COVID, of course, um, just like Lenny writes about our dogs. I write about our dogs. Um, I uh, really like skydiving. I have a couple of skydiving poems in there. Uh, a lot of what I write about, too, is memory. Um, because my um, most, I have a whole pile of newspaper articles and stuff here glad you mentioned that. I actually might hold up a couple tomorrow night. Um, So my father died when I was nine. And so most of what I know about my father is literally from newspaper articles. I don't know much about him at all, which is why I don't know anything about my family. And so I have lots of poems that talk about memories and about childhood memories. I don't have a lot of them. Some people, you know, you meet and they're like, oh, I remember I was two years old. And I'm like, dude, I, I remember very little, you know, just little snippets of my childhood. And fortunately, my brothers have better memories and they help me. So several poems in here are just little flashes of childhood that I'm trying to preserve and like an amber, you know, by writing it down. Um, and I'm hoping for my next book to actually interview my brother, both my brothers more and, and put some of that into the book so I can remember it. Um, and my, my mother's no longer with me. I'm the patriarch. Uh, before I went to Turkey, me, little old me, who's not that old, I'm old enough, was the patriarch, was the oldest member of the Oktai family, uh, of my family here in America. So all I had was two baby brothers and and their families. That's it. <laughs> so now um, I am very cognizant that I need to start recording some of this. Um, and poetry is an easy way, to, in my opinion, to to write down your feelings and ideas. When I listen to other poets, I'm especially moved when they talk about their lives and uh, what's important to them and their their loves. You know, regardless of what it is, if it's a computer, or a dog, a uh, a house, a boat, or a person. You know, it's I, I like hearing about people's lives. 
Okay. There's always a, I always hear about the blending of people's um, passion and people's jobs. They, they, they always, there's always poems about that. Some people bring in like an Excel poem or something in the fact of, so how is a scientist, uh, a science poem differ from the rest? I mean, I know there's a lot of information that's been, but, but how do you pick, how do you, you just basically get like some, you know, do a study on something and then you just try to pick out from there and try to associate it? Well, most of it's more of a slice of life, like, uh, or I take scientific theories, uh, like I have a book on physics, and a, or I have a poem on physics, and I have a poem on geology. So I try to take what I've learned in science, and how does it apply to something that's more about feelings, or about how people are. And so it's more of a metaphor, using science as metaphor. Um, for reality. Uh, I am going to start writing. I do refer to Zoom a lot of my poetry, and uh, I'm going to start talking more about what it's physically like to be a scientist, you know, what it's like to put on waders and be in the ocean all day, and what is it like to pick, you know, work with horseshoe crabs, or, um, or you know, uh, be out in a boat in the middle of the ocean in a little zodiac where, you know, if a whale comes along, it can dump you. Uh, there's a lot of sad things that happen in science, um, so I probably should write more about that. I've been kind of try- I try to be optimistic, and so I haven't written about you know seeing dolphins die or things that are are really sad. Um, I've got a couple of poems I'm writing right now about seeing um, dolphins swimming in the ocean at night. And there's bioluminescence, which is created by little creatures that create these lights when they're disturbed. And so when a dolphin is swimming at 20 miles an hour through it, it looks like a speeding bullet of gold light. And you can see it from about 10 miles away. It looks like actually like a torpedo coming to your boat. It's quite scary. <laughs> so you're like, what is that glowing thing? And then your science mind goes, oh, that's bioluminescence. That's a dolphin. We're not all going to die. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> but it's something that no one else, I'm sure no one else uh, has seen, you know, except my colleagues that were on the boat. So I have a lot of friends that I have a dear friend, Elizabeth Bradfield, who writes science poetry about whales about field research, about Antarctica, and she's really, she really puts you there in these freezing cold situations where you're, one of my favorite poems is called No More Nature by her, about a long day of being out trying to learn everything about, you know, penguins or seals or whatever. It's very hard work. It's very tiring. And it's, after a while, you're just like, I can't handle any more of this beauty even. You're just like, I just want to be sitting in my chair you know, watching TV. And she does a great job about, you know, how, what whale's breath smells like, (laughs) what the sea looks like. I mean, the sea is spectacular, but it's very different than what people think. Um, So yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to um, put, my whole life has been about communicating science to regular people. That's all of my writing does that. Um, So, so, but you did, you did live from um, Nantucket and then moved to Colorado. How, since Colorado is more inland and that's more lake-wide, how is that different from the ocean? It's incredibly different. So I wanted to find, uh, go work for uh, a field station that's one of the oldest in the country. It's mm-hmm. been there about 100 years, uh, way up at um, 10,000, 12,000 feet. So it's known for basically its elevation. I'd always worked at sea level. And so I, I got recruited, actually, to go out there. They um, recruited me. Unfortunately, I, I'm, I get recruited a lot, which is nice. Um, and mm-hmm. so... Um, yeah, and I was mainly doing fundraising there, but I didn't wasn't familiar at all with anything on the the western side of the Rockies. All right. of the plants plants are different. The animals are different. You've got marmots. 
You've got, uh, as soon as you cross over the Mississippi River, everything becomes a western towhee instead of an eastern towhee. Um, lots what's of white... The, what's a towhee? Tohi's a bird. Okay. Bird. Okay. It goes, drink your tea. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you see them every day. They're all over. They're not as common as they are on the East Coast. But um, yeah, it's just a common bird that you okay. uh, see here in California. That was another reason to come to California. I'd gotten offers to go back to the East Coast, and I actually selected the West Coast to learn more stuff, to see new habitats, uh, new states. Um, I am always liking to challenge myself and see different horizons. So what what in your in your opinion what is the main difference of the coastal differences from the east coast version and the west coast or pacific and the atlantic what's Yeah that? yeah so the pacific is much deeper and colder uh, it's not nearly as con- uh, contaminated or polluted oh, it's right. much cleaner here um, for a variety of reasons just cuz it's so deep and so the pollution kind of just shoots right out into the pacific <laughs> where on the east coast it's it's you know you can measure um, pollutants in the Hudson River you know uh, 50 or 100 miles up the river. Wow. So uh, it's, you know, very different uh, system as far as rivers. Rivers are, are um, snow, uh, s- snow melt is more important here. So, and it's a uh, lot, the erosional issues are, are much less uh, actually on the West Coast, except for Highway 1 and a couple of areas. Erosion is not a bi- as big a deal because it's rockier. The coast okay. is rockier. It's more volcanic okay. instead of sedimentary. So, um, and there's, it's not as, you know, not as many towns are at sea level. Oh. It's not near as worrisome. I worked for 10 years in uh, New Orleans, um, which is, you know, and Galveston's very yeah. impacted by sea level rise. So this is a much safer coast. I mean, people joke when I moved to 10,000 feet above sea level, they're like, wow, you're really worried about sea level rise. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm safe here in the Rockies. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> California has, um, has more some policy issues as far as, um, uh, you know, kelp forests, and, um, you know, they've done a good job keeping most uh, energy um, uses safe, but there's a lot more whales here and uh, competing uses. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know all the, the issues with San Francisco and how it's dealing or okay. San Diego. Yeah. Okay. But it's it's not quite as, uh, the issues aren't pressing in the same way as they are, in my opinion, okay. on the East Coast or in the Gulf Coast. Oh, okay. Because uh, I always hear that we're I always hear that the coastal line of the of the West Coast, basically LA and everything is going to go basically go into the go into the ocean in I don't know how a hundred years or whatever a decade. Yeah, <laughs> I always say, yeah, it's going to go, it's going to go, we're going to lose that whole coastline, it's going to float away. Or yeah, well, an earthquake is it could rearrange <laughs> everything very quickly, but it's not something that oceanographers really worry about. And we're we're more worried about subsidence or sea level rise and erosion from waves. And uh, and and there's the the wildlife here is really much different. I mean, all of the whales are just spectacular, and yeah, it's pretty. It's it's nice too that I'm surprised that not as much pollution makes it offshore, and it's because it just gets really deep. There are ma- major canyons right offshore. Um, yeah, uh, off the off of the Pacific, just because of how volcanism works and the Ring of Fire and all of that. So, it's you know it drops off to three hundred to a thousand feet really quickly, and wow. so. It's uh, and it's much colder water, you know. It's different, totally, totally different, you know, regime basically. Okay, okay. So speaking of, so let's let's change this one. So speaking that you have of you have, I always say like this to people: we are dealing with a, a factor of 
there are literary poets that basically um, talk about the books, uh, basically do um, recitals and stuff. And then we also have the, the speaking or the spoken word poets that do the CDs or the performances of And we always have a verse, uh, thing where they always have tension with each other. We call it pay versus the stage. Yep. So I'm going to ask you, Sarah, mm-hmm. do you, what are you comfortable with? The page, the stage, or both? I'm fairly comfortable with both. I would say I probably fall in the middle. I try to make mine fairly performative um, and not just a boring reading. I think scientists really need to work on that. I actually, when I'm giving talks and lectures, I'm lucky I sometimes get 100, 200 people coming to talks I give. So I try to make things interesting regardless if it's poetry or science. I am, you know, no slam poet, though. I mean, that that's, uh, you know, a, a level above mine. I mean, I could become one, but that's it's, it's you yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand the three minutes. Like, I can perform, I, you know, and I, I, I have performed. I actually did a, 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 a performance at a burlesque show once for, uh, for, I did a PowerPoint, actually, at a literary roast nice. in Boston <laughs> uh, at a burlesque show. So I was pretty proud of that. That was a 20-minute riff on a Hemingway uh, that I did. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I can bring it if I have to, but, you know, I'm not probably, you know, certainly as literate or as literary as a really serious poet. I mean, there's some really – I don't want to – I, I I'd like to dabble. I think that's kind of a cheesy word, but you know, I, I think uh, all Americans and all kids and all people from all backgrounds should be encouraged to write. And so I'm just writing as a, every woman, you know, just as a schmo, you know, basically. <laughs> You're not a schmo. Uh, well, <laughs> that's sweet. Well, there's not a. It's funny because scientists are like, "Oh my God, you wrote poetry," and I'm like, "Dudes, so, I mean, we do." We work with, you know, million dollar nuclear reactors. I'm like, writing poetry is not that difficult. <laughs> I was and, say, yeah. <laughs> but to do it well is, and, and I'm hoping that, um, you know, I like my poems fine. Um, I get a lot of inspiration from other people. I love listening to what they write uh, and reading what they write. Um, and I think this makes us more human, basically, to, to share what's. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, do you have a poem to read? I do. I have. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out. I think I'm going to do. I'll do two poems. I'm going to do a, a, a cute, funny one first. Okay. And then I'll do the very first uh, poem that I ever did. Okay. Everyone, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> my first poem is called Mr. Cool. And it's one I just wrote about my Australian shepherd. So, Mr. Cool. I really admire my Australian shepherd. I think you would call him a dog's dog. He epitomizes cool. While our 11-year-old Labradoodle chases a tennis ball around our postage stamp backyard like a crazy cornball Buster Keaton on speed, our six-month-old puppy, Mr. Cool, sits down every chance he gets to chew on a stick. More Steve McQueen than James Dean, I'd let him drive my Porsche. He trots into my office while I zoom for the eighth time this day. He pulls up some carpet, plops himself down, crosses his legs, and proceeds to stare into the abyss, pondering his next teething victim with aplomb. His cunning eyes betray more than the average dog's thoughts. I think I detected a wee tear the day Sean Connery died. Wow. 
Thank you. That's a fun one, right? You know, it's it's kind and uh, it's totally, totally my dog. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, that's exactly what I was heading for. I'm glad you like that. Yeah, I like uh, doing. I I usually like I put the Big Bang Theory and stuff into my poems. I, I, in fact, I'll read that one next, and then I'll do. so I'll do physics playground, which is a true traditional scientist poet. Not that I'm a great physicist, but I I, I know what a couple of the words mean, and yeah. I yeah I dabble in that. And I love watching the Big Bang Theory. That's what Lenny and I watch all the time. It's very comforting to us. And those nerds are I'm totally those nerds. I am the D and D playing that show. I might as well totally be in it because that's that, that's I can identify completely with those guys. Okay. So. This is called Physics Playground. Um, Muons race past the neutrinos to get to the jungle gym first. They shake their fists as the sparks fly when they grab the handlebars. Neutrinos don't care. Long thought to be massless, they strain to outrace the light, interact with their lepton cousins. We both love physics. At least I think we both do. I certainly do. It is elegant, non-controversial. Straightforward, necessary. Without it, we all fall down. For comfort and coziness, Lynn and I watch reruns of the Big Bang Theory every night. We have seen each episode about a billion times. But still, we settle in for the one routine that always makes us happy in these days without end within four walls. Nice. <laughs> like that. Like that. Good. I was going to say, I, I'm not sure I'd read that for a physicist friend because I think they go, oh, no, the neutrinos don't do that at all. We're, we're, what? <laughs> I'm just like, please tell me I'm not wrong. <laughs> they always surprise me. They never talk about oceanographers, but they always talk about geologists because <laughs> of John yep. Paulson. <laughs> they always talk bad about them. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I, I just don't know anything. There's serious people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it always cracks me up. Yeah, because I, I love geology. Um, but there is that kind of uh, uh, that there is that uh, hierarchy in science that where I was explaining it to a young student yesterday, and I said, if you don't know much math, you're a biologist. If you're a little bit better in math, you're a geologist. If you're a lot better at math, you're a chemist. And if you're a math whiz, you're a physicist. And that is exactly where you fall on the on the the. Uh, the graph of science and so all the physicists are like oh you dummies you don't know any math and our as as chemists we do tend to look down on i won't let a biologist uh figure out the tip at a restaurant because i (laughs) don't trust them to know the bath math i'm fairly subtle about it and now that word is out so i have tons of biology friends that are gonna but they know it you know we'll be at a restaurant and they're like let me figure out the tip i'm like no thank you let let me do that for you okay (laughs) Any biologist? No, man. I'm, I'm good with the tip. I'll take yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just let me calculate. I'll tell you how much you're putting in. How about that? Let's give me a twenty. We'll be fine. We'll yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be even. <laughs> you only had a salad, but that's you know, right. yeah, salad, you know, man. Give me twenty dollars. You'd be fine. <laughs> it's like really? Yeah, twenty dollars. Fine. He gets more money than normal. That, that's right. <laughs> I love biology, but and I was the president of the organization of biological um, field stations yes, uh, for a couple that. of years. Yeah, and I that's one of my biggest jobs that I do, uh, or volunteer things I do, is work for OBFS. I'm a big fan. I've done tons of fundraisers for them and brought in lots of guest speakers. And a big, it's really important to me in my life. Uh, but I kept 
meeting to have teachers says I'm not a biologist because they'll start going <laughs> biology road and talking about stuff that I don't know anything about, and uh, I have to raise my hand and go I, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> you're gonna have this yeah. I am not a biologist. I'm- I am not a biologist. Because <laughs> people will talk to me like I am. It's kind of yeah. like if you look like you know Spanish or something, oh, yeah. and people start. It's the same thing. People start talking to me in bio- biological terms. I'm like, I I don't know what you're. <laughs> if it's an element, if it's water, if it's water, I can talk day in and day out. You know, atmosphere, climate change, no problem. But when you start talking about uh, behavioral changes and morphological adaptations, I'm just like. Mm. No clue. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I know that we're biological creatures, but it's just not, you know, I'm not an expert. So. Nice. Well, yeah. thank you for being on my podcast and stuff. Tell people where they can find you on social media. If you want. Oh, sure. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah. Okay. I just, uh, until my beginning, my last name is okay. I've been on Twitter for about 12 years, probably. I'm on Facebook at Sarah Oktai. Uh, I'm on Instagram, though I'm wicked bad about ever posting anything, but I am Sarah Oktai, O-K-T-A-Y on Instagram. Um, I ran a couple of blogs for a while uh, called Scientist 26 Miles Offshore. Um, but if you just Google Sarah Oktai, O-K-T-A-Y, and put in any topic, I've written um, about 200 articles on um, everything from mosquitoes to erosion to uh, pygmy sperm wells. You name it, I've written the article on it. So um, you can find me all over the place if you just Google me. And I'm going to be performing tomorrow night with Scott Thurston, who's an amazing uh, performer um, for the SAC Poetry Center. And you can find all her performances for SAC Poetry Center at SAC Poetry, S-A-C-P-O-E-T-R-Y, center, S-E-N-T-E-R, dot org. So hope to see you there. There you go, people. And it just let you know that Sarah did make the new Sacramento Poetry Center's website. So just a little bit of a little fun fact. And if you do look her up, you will get 20,000 things. Plus her LinkedIn has YouTube and everything else publicated into it. So she's a long read. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of yeah there's sometimes you know 300,000 links I mean there's it's a lot oh, yeah. yeah yeah I'm not secretive online <laughs> oh, no 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 you're not there's, most people like you know look at celebrities and stuff you you have enough on there <laughs> what <laughs> but no thank you Thanks. for coming on and everything and yeah. yes we will be putting out and to put again sifting light from the darkness Sick Life from Darkness. Get that on Amazon.com paperback right now. Get your copy. And Kindle can, soon. Kindle soon. It will be on Kindle. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, and we will put on the show. Thank you, people, for coming. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. <laughs> Thank you for doing so much homework. Uh, and I just, I think you for everything you do in poetry uh, here in Sacramento. We, I really appreciate you. For more information, please go to L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Iambic Zine. I-A-M-B-I-C-Z-I-N-E. Thank you.